From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munair. In this episode, we will be talking about some of the initial indications from the Biden administration on its engagement with Palestinians. The Biden administration is now in office, and some important pieces of the president's team have been identified. Tony Blinken, for example, has been confirmed as the new Secretary of State. Jake Sullivan will be the National Security Advisor, and so on. We've also begun to see indications of how a Biden administration might engage Palestinians. And we've started to see bilateral communication between Washington and Israel, as, uh, as well as some statements of policy. So joining us to take on five questions on the subject of engagement with Palestinians is Zaha Hassan. Zaha is a human rights lawyer and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Her research focus is on uh, Palestine-Israel peace, the use of international legal mechanisms by political movements, and U.S. foreign policy in the region. Previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for UN membership, and was a member of the Palestinian delegation to quartet-sponsored exploratory talks between 2011 and 2012. She regularly participates in Track 2 peace efforts and is a contributor to the Hill, Haaretz, uh, and her commentaries have appeared in the New York Times, Salon, Al Jazeera English, CNN, and many others. Zaha, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Yusuf. So let's jump right into this with question number one. Given what we know about the Biden administration, Joe Biden himself, the people he's assembled around him, as well as the situation in Israel-Palestine policy that the Trump administration has left him. What are your realistic expectations for what a Biden administration will do? Thanks. Uh, you know, the Biden administration has been true to the promises made during the primary and general election campaign. They've clearly said what they intend to do and what they will not do with regard to Israel-Palestine peacemaking. I think we saw those promises reflected um, at the Senate confirmation hearings for Secretary of State um, Blinken and by the acting U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Richard Miller, and his remarks to the Security Council. There are still some positions in the Biden administration that we have to wait and see about, like the head of the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs and the um, U.S. Ambassador to Israel. We don't know who those folks are yet. But it is telling that at this, um, on the State Department um, website, the Near East Bureau website, um, Palestinian territories are not back online yet. <laughs> so, you know, they, they were listed under Obama, but we don't see Palestinian ter territories appearing yet in the Near East Bureau. Um, we'll have to wait and see um, on this after that bit of drama um, an hour into the inauguration when the U.S. ambassador to Israel's Twitter account included the West Bank and Gaza as part of the scope of U.S. representation. So without knowing who those personality, personalities will be to fill those seats, I think we have a good idea of what the Biden administration's priorities will be. They've been set um, by the very top of the administration. Of course, that doesn't mean that events can't overtake the best laid plans and events in the occupied Palestinian territories and Israel often do. Still, we can expect the following five things from the Biden administration. First, you're gonna see a death grip on the two-state solution. 
which Biden and his Middle East team believe is the only acceptable outcome um, for Israelis and Palestinians, even if it's virtually impossible at this point, and even as Israel takes steps to build in the most sensitive areas in the West Bank that would otherwise foreclose a viable sovereign state from emerging. The second thing we can expect um, is um, work on trying to get bilateral assistance back online for Palestinians. It was mostly stopped in 2018 following the passage of the Taylor Force Act, which conditioned assistance on whether Palestinians continue to provide social welfare payments to prisoners in Israeli jails um, or to their families of those killed during political violence. The PLO and the Palestinian Authority have been looking at how to revise the series of laws, decrees, regulations that establish the payment structure but they've been having a hard time coming up with a solution that would satisfy the requirements of the Taylor Force Act because they would essentially have to scrap the entire system in favor of a purely needs-based system. Now, given how great the need is among Palestinians where unemployment is through the roof and the Palestinian Authority coffers have been dry, a situation exacerbated by the pandemic, they will not be able to comply with the legislation. Now, the third thing the Biden administration will focus on is reopening the PLO mission in the US. This will be hampered by the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act, which links PLO and PA liability for $650 million stemming from dismissed terrorism cases to PLO or PA presence in the US, including having a mission. It also links liability to continuation of the PLO um, prisoner payment system. So arguably the liability has already been triggered since April, 2020, when the deadline for those payments to stop um, you know, uh, happened. There is still some debate whether jurisdiction was actually triggered, but in any case, the PLO is not gonna roll the dice to open up a mission in the US so long as it might be subject to liability. And you can bet victims, uh, lawyers are not going to let go of this issue um, so that a PLO mission can open in the US. They're going to they're gonna want to trigger that jurisdiction. Um, the fourth thing that the administration will give attention to is reopening the consulate in Jerusalem that has historically served as the de facto embassy to Palestinians. But in order to open the consulate, they'll have to find a location and get permissions from Israel, which Israel is unlikely to give particularly as we're entering another election uh, season for uh, Israel, uh, the jockeying around Jerusalem and settlements will take center stage and there'll be no way a consulate's gonna get permission to open um, in uh, Jerusalem. The fifth thing concerns Arab normalization with Israel. The US intends to continue to pursue such deals in whatever way they can. Now, I don't think they're, they're gonna be keen to provide arms sales as an inducement. Um, as we, you know, we saw today that uh, the administration put a hold on, um, on uh, the weapons transfers to the UAE. And um, so you know, that's one thing we, we uh, aren't gonna likely see, but there will be other inducements that the US will be called upon to make in order to seal the deal um, on these Arab normalization agreements. So I think the administration will largely be on a hamster wheel with its work on restoring bilateral aid and reopening a PLO mission and the consulate in Jerusalem. But this will give them something to do on the file while they, while they direct their attention to getting the Iran nuclear deal online. The administration will not want to engage in any hard asks of Israel for fear of raising the temperature on the US-Israel relationship at a sensitive time when they know they will be in for a fight on rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. So um, recently we heard, I think, one of the first sort of 
substantive statements of a policy um, at the United Nations uh, by the U.S. representative, um, setting out some uh, objectives for Washington vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the Palestinians. And uh, you had a, a very incisive uh, Twitter thread sort of responding to all that. Can you uh, give us a sense of what it is that was laid out uh, in that statement at the United Nations and also some of your response to it? You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the um, acting UN um, ambassador basically, again, reaffirmed the two-state solution um, and talked about improving conditions on the ground for Palestinians, particularly humanitarian assistance to Gaza. Um, there was talk about, you know, in, ending incitement to violence and ending the prisoner payment system. Um, uh, while also uh, saying that the U.S. would work to, you know, to stop annexation and settlement activity and, and demolitions um, of homes, I assume, and other other Palestinian property, um, there was also mention of opposing one-sided U.N. Re resolutions and unfair treatment um, in of, of Israel and other international bodies. Uh, presumably, this is a reference to the ICC case, as well as, um, uh, you know, the treatment of um, or the, the UN database um, that is, uh, you know, creating a list of companies that are facilitating the Israeli occupation and profiting from it. Um, and then the other item that was uh, mentioned by the acting uh, ambassador to the UN was this idea of supporting uh, normalization agreements um, while still supporting Palestine, Palestinian-Israeli peace. Um, but what we've seen from, you know, the UAE-Israel normalization deal and the, the secondary agreements that followed from those, the idea that these normalization agreements are going to support Palestinian-Israeli peace it has not, uh, you know, uh, borne out. Um, also interesting, though, I thought recently was the um, the Senate confirmation hearings for Biden's President Biden's pick for for the for the post for the post to the UN, which is Linda Thomas Greenfield. What she said was that you know from her perch at the UN, she intends to push Arab governments to support Israeli rights in the UN, particularly those uh, Arab countries who've signed on to the Abraham Accords. What she didn't say is what she and the Biden administration would do to stop the Abraham Accords from blurring distinctions between Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. So what we've heard from the acting UN, um, US ambassador to the UN and, and uh, the uh, pick for the post um, is really more of the same that we've heard um, in the past. I mean, there's no, there's no real deviation from sort of Obama era policy um, in terms of protecting Israel at the at the UN, um, but then there's this also uh, what's new I think is this prioritization of normalization in a way we hadn't seen um, before, and trying to maybe outdo Trump <laughs> with respect to uh, getting more uh, more Arab governments and Muslim majority countries to to recognize Israel, normalize relations with Israel. So, you know, you talked about sort of the Biden administration wanting to have this death grip on the two-state solution, uh, but for years now, it's uh, seemed a lot like grasping at, at straws. Uh, there are fewer and fewer sort of 
um, believers in, in the idea that, that that can work given the situation on the ground. And, you know, in the, the four years we saw uh, of the Trump administration, it seemed like Trump administration policies were aimed at accelerating the demise of the two-state solution as quickly as possible if, it's, if it was still possible for those who still believed it was possible. Prior to Trump, you know, the Obama administration told us the status quo was unsustainable. That's something that we heard a lot. But the Biden administration's objective seems to want to recreate as much of the status quo before Trump as possible and then hope that they can just sustain it and call it a win if they can. Is that even possible? And if it is, is it good policy? First of all, there was never anything uh, such as a status quo. The status quo was has always been a moving target, but under the Trump administration, many of his actions or the actions that were taken uh, by his Middle East team um, are gonna be incredibly difficult for the Biden administration to reverse, to take us back to the status quo of the Obama era as it existed. Of course, the increase in the population of settlers was greatly accelerated under Trump, particularly deep inside the West Bank. How is that going to be reversed under a Biden uh, administration? The U.S. Embassy is certainly not going to go back to Tel Aviv. They've already uh, told us that. Um, but think about how the U.S.-Israel bilateral uh, research and development agreements have been extended into settlements in the West Bank and how products um, from Area C, 60% of the West Bank are now going to be, be labeled made in Israel. Is the Biden administration going to reverse those actions? Will it reassert U.S. policy regarding the illegality of settlements that was contained in legal memos from the Carter administration that Secretary of, uh, of State Pompeo disavowed? Will it Will the State Department go back to referring to Palestinian residents in Jerusalem as Palestinians rather than Arabs? That, that was uh, the change made under President Trump's administration. Will it bring back use of the word occupied territories? How will it deal with all of these things? I mean, we have to wait and see, but certainly the prioritization of getting the Iran nuclear deal and coaxing Israel to go along with things instead of trying to act as a spoiler, I think will mute some of the efforts to reverse um, you know, the Trump administration actions that were really some of the most egregious things we've seen on the Israel-Palestine file. So getting back to uh, the normalization agreements, which you had uh, mentioned earlier, you know, it looks like the Biden administration wants to build on these normalization agreements that the, the Trump administration secured. Uh, but some of the arms deals that made them possible might well be held up by the Biden administration. Do you see them staying in place, uh, the arms deals and the normalization agreements uh, them, themselves, um, uh, or, you know, maybe falling apart? And moving forward, what implications do they have for uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace? I mean, even going back to the... Um the Biden campaign before the primary, the idea of encouraging and urging Arab states to normalize with Israel was high on the agenda of, uh, of the campaign and it's, and it's continued to be high on the agenda um, now that uh, you know, President Biden is in office. And so 
so um, while I don't believe that this administration that has prioritized, um, you know, trying to prevent an arms race, particularly in a region like the Middle East, where you know there, you know, human rights abuses and conflict is rampant, you know, because they don't want to see an arms race, and because um, they recognize that it's a very sensitive region, I think the inducements for Arab normalization with Israel won't come in the form of, you know, arms sales, won't be, you know, you know, uh, these uh, weapon sales that we saw to the UAE, to Morocco, um, and the promises that were made for others if they, if they, you know, part, you know, if they join the Abraham Accords, we won't see that. But what we will see, I think, um, is creative ways, other creative ways to get countries uh, on board. And, and these might come more in terms of economic incentives and inducements. Um, certainly, um, there's, a great, there's great support for uh, regional economic cooperation and integration between the Arab countries and Israel. So I think what we'll find is the focus will be more on, on ways to get um, you know, Arab countries to support uh, regional cooperation and to help funnel money towards that end. Um, recently, um, in December, uh, the uh, Middle East Peace Partnership Act passed, which included this Joint Investment for Peace Initiative, which basically creates a fund that would allow for regional um, economic uh, development projects between um, Palestinians and Israelis. Um, and it's opened to uh, the Arab world and also to Europe to, to participate in, in terms of providing funding and management. Um, so I think we're gonna see creative ways to use the fund and to use um, inducements to participate in this as a way to, to increase the number of Arab governments that are involved in um, involved in the Abraham Fund and involved in um, uh, normalizing with, with Israel. I mean, the, the big concern, however, is that there's no way to prevent these, um, these uh, the, the fund and also the normalization agreements from uh, not differentiating between Israel and the occupied territories. And we've seen this with the UAE normalization deal, the follow-on agreements from the normalization uh, uh, agreement between Israel and the UAE have included things like trade between you know, settlements in the Golan and settlements in the West Bank with the UAE. It's included the creation of the Abraham Fund, which the office will be in Jerusalem and will involve um, uh, establishing uh, a tech center and tourism uh, zone um, on in, in, by evicting and demolishing a part of Jerusalem where Palestinian businesses are currently located, a project that Israel has been trying to push for some years. And it includes settlers traveling to the UAE to, um, you know, to develop a plan for um, economic um, uh, projects and, and, um, and integration, regional integration. So, so far the, you know the track record on Arab normalization hasn't been hasn't been so good. 
with respect to facilitating Israeli-Palestinian peace. I mean, these, these normalization agreements were all like tooted as being a way to facilitate Israeli-Palestinian peace. But in fact, what we're seeing is there's a blurring of lines between Israel and um, the occupied territories under these follow-on agreements. And, in, and that's in fact why Israel is so um, hot on pursuing them. Uh, it's, it's not because there's a need for peace because these aren't peace agreements. These, these aren't uh, countries with the exception of Sudan that have ever been at war with Israel, but it's meant to um, normalize in particular uh, uh, Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem and also over much of the West Bank. When you think about the follow-on agreements, they all relate to things that, are, that involve uh, dis, uh, defining territory, whether it's tourism. Where's those tourism, where's the lines for the, where the tours will take place that are gonna be between you, the EU, uh, UAE and Israel? And where are, um, you know, where these trade agreements, where are the uh, products coming from that are going to be traded? So far, it hasn't looked very good um, in terms of uh, supporting the two-state solution or Israeli-Palestinian peace. Zai, you uh, talked about the Iran deal and uh, a diplomacy with uh, Iran around non-proliferation non <laughs> uh, being a priority for the Biden administration, and of course it is, uh, and the role that that sort of plays in the U.S.-Israel relationship too, and not wanting to, you know, create too much friction there because of the uh, the the Iran deal. And one of the things that have kind of framed that uh, priority is the fact that um, Iran is facing elections in the coming year that could lead to a change in government and a change in policy as far as how it might engage the United States. Uh, on the uh, uh, Iran deal, on the JCPOA. Um, but we are now also seeing that both the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority have elections coming up um, in the spring and in the summer with Israeli elections coming up uh, in March uh, and then uh, Palestinian uh, elections for both the Legislative Council and the Presidency, reportedly, we'll see if they actually end up happening because we've heard we've heard this tune before. Um, but uh, it seems like uh, there's a chance that they may take place both in, later in the spring and in the summer. So, how do you see the outcomes of these elections potentially impacting the direction of Biden administration policy? Um, could what we're hearing now from the Biden administration just be sort of like a placeholder uh, until they know who it is that they're going to be having bilateral relationships with? Uh, or is this likely the plan regardless to whether Netanyahu's the next prime minister or it's some other Israeli political leader that's going to be forming the next government or whether, you know, you have... Um, Mahmoud Abbas uh, and uh, Fatah sort of running the show or um, some other group of, of characters uh, directing the, the Palestinian Authority. What do you think uh, these elections can do uh, in terms of where U.S. policy will go? You know, I don't believe that either the Israeli elections or the Palestinian 
elections are going to be determinative of of how Biden is going to approach um, you know the Israel Palestine file at all. I mean, first of all, just on the Israel on the Israeli elections, I mean, we aren't likely to see a change in in um, the incentive structure that has gotten us to where we are right now um, with respect to you know Israeli settlements and and um, de facto annexation leading you know soon if sooner not sooner rather than later but you know it's still on track regardless of whether it's it's been postponed but to de jure annexation i don't think um you know whether we see uh, a change in the prime ministership whether or not uh, that happens um, that we're going to see a change in israeli policy on these issues so i don't think the um, biden team is waiting for that um nor do I think they're waiting to see really what happens on the Palestinian side so much because it's so much of what we know about uh, the, the preparations for the Palestinian elections uh, makes it look like we're gonna see a lot more of the same uh, from those elections if they ever take place, as you noted. Um, you know, for a long time, Palestinian democratic governance and elections have been the policy goal of the US, but in practice, the US um, has conditioned assistance to the to the PA and put its thumb down on the scale, on the side of you know growing illiberalism in in the governing um, institutions of um, Palestinian bodies. So I don't I don't even believe that um, you know the Biden team really wants to see <laughs> true Palestinian democracy. If it's if it's true to um, uh, you know the Obama era. Uh, the, I don't think that that they're necessarily very interested in seeing um, something different than than what we've had. I mean, they're they're not going to find a more um, uh, a more compliant Palestinian leader and more um, interested in engaging with the U.S. on negotiations than they did with with Mahmoud Abbas. But of course, Palestinian elections are something necessary. For Palestinian political renewal, um, but I don't. But PA elections won't, were, are just going to entrench the current divides rather than ameliorate them. Given that there's talk of Fatah and Hamas fielding a joint list of legislative candidates, Hamas has also apparently agreed not to field a presidential candidate, and President Abbas plans to run for the presidency. Though there is also um, indication that. Um, the Fatah presidential ticket is fracturing between Dahlan supporters, Marwan Barghouti, who said he will run from prison, and Abbas. Now, if this happens, it's unlikely we'll see presidential elections happen at all. Fatah is not going to risk losing the presidency. And I think Hamas and Fatah both are going through the motions of elections for their own reasons. Fatah needs to show that they are the authority in the Palestinian territories in order to get to, to a point to relaunch negotiations. And now that Qatar, uh, the Hamas patron, patron has made uh, up with Saudi Arabia and the GCC, Hamas may not be able to rely on regular infusions of Qatari cash to keep um, Gaza afloat. And robust international assistance to the Strip will be hamstrung by Fatah unless Hamas goes along with elections. Now, if these are the incentives for the elections, it doesn't bode well for the prospects of free and fair elections. Um, the deck is being stacked from the get-go 
What is really needed uh, is a national dialogue on renewal of the PLO and how to allow for political factions outside of the PLO to come under its umbrella and how to conduct direct elections to the PLO National Council, the parliament, so that all Palestinians inside the occupied territories and in the diaspora can participate and be represented and be part of confronting the many challenges facing Palestinians today. Zaha, uh, that was the last of the five questions, and I really appreciate uh, your very incisive answers uh, to uh, all of them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, ArabCenterDC.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.